Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where we aim to help you move from residential investment into commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Today, I'm super excited to have Ray Lindenberg from over on the other side of the pond talking to us about his experiences through the serviced office industry and this sector that we talk about a lot, which is multi-let space. Ray, it's it's really great to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while because I know your experiences over there um, are something worthy of sharing on this podcast. And I've been following your your experiences and your social media entries and lots of the content you've put out there over the years. And in fact, it's it's actually, I think, about at least 10 years since we met. And, and that would have been back at a conference in London few years ago and we have met on a few other occasions and the last time I think was actually in Manhattan which was fantastic it was one of the events that you actually organized because you're involved in the industry in a supportive manner over there and it was evident in those early days that you're a real student of this industry and you've invested lots of your time and money traveling around the world, investigating and learning about the many facets of this industry. So we're really privileged to have you on the show. And I think to start off, to kick off, could you maybe give us some of your some of your background, Ray, before we get into the into the details? Can you tell the audience just about how long you've been in the industry, some of the things you've been up to? Surely, Jerry, and thanks for reaching out to me. It's been a while since we've spoken. And uh, I also want to give a shout out to all my friends in, in the UK and in Europe and North America. Obviously, during the last, since the beginning of the year, there's been limited travel that we've all been to. So I miss you all. And uh, thanks for uh, engaging me on this. Um, well, I've been in the industry for 30 years now. I started out uh, in 1990 uh, as a consultant to the industry on people who were converting their excess space to a new way of working, which uh, in those days was mostly a, kind of a serviced off, uh, a serviced uh, sublet uh, situation. So I kind of fell into that like many of us do coming into the industry. Uh, and the name of my organization is Winning Workspaces Hospitality Group, uh, because we very much feel we are in the hospitality as opposed to the real estate industry. Or mostly in the hospitality industry. And for the past 30 years, I've been a consultant to various operators here in North America, mostly in the New York City area. <clears throat> and uh, what I do is I help them identify a space and uh, then I get involved in all facets of them opening and designing, uh, helping them with the operations, uh, HR, 
uh, marketing and sales. So I'm pretty much uh, there to hold their hand and help them in any way to start and grow their business or to expand their business uh, or to reposition their business. Then about 15 years ago um, in 19, excuse me, in 2005, uh, I started an association in New York uh, called the Workspace Association of New York, of which I'm the founder and I'm currently the president of. Um, and that's basically a, a fellowship of uh, cooperating operators, mostly in the New York area, but we do have operators uh, around North America and Europe who also are part of it. Uh, and we have some operators that have 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 locations. So we have a number of locations that uh, we kind of influence. And so the Workspace Association has been in business for 15 years, we're proud to say. And uh, we cooperate and help each other out in any way we can so that we can uh, make it through, especially through times like this. Uh, and it's been very successful. So um, that's kind of in a nutshell of where I've been for the last 30 and the last 15. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, Ray. A lot of experience there. And we're going to dive into things like operations, sales, branding and marketing later on. There's, there's some questions that I'd really like to ask you. But just for the sake of our listeners, the, the North American market, sometimes uses different terminologies, such as executive centers, something I've heard a few times. So just for the sake of clarity, what what would be the typical offer now of a modern executive or a business center operator over where you are? Yeah, thanks for that question, because in my consulting and in my discussions with operators all over North America and the world, uh, there's still uh, an evolving lexicon that we need to settle in on when we are working together or when I'm working with somebody so that there's no confusion. And for the purposes of this discussion, let me identify the three types of basic workspaces that I will be referring to so that there'll be clarity when I do address them individually. Um, the first space that uh, we were, that uh, I work with, the most traditional space that I work with, which is most of the operators, is something that I called a serviced workspace. Okay, again, other people use other terms. of service workspace is basically um, almost like a hotel for businesses. It's a traditional executive suite where people go and outsource all their, uh, all their office needs to a location. And then that the operator provides all the services and kind of hosts them up on their shoulders and does everything for them so that they don't have to hire anybody and they can grow or uh, condense as, as they need to. And they're traditionally enclosed offices. So those were, were the traditional executive suite business center offices that other people use other terms right now. For the purpose of this discussion, uh, those traditional office spaces, uh, I'm going to be calling them serviced workspaces. <clears throat> the second category is the co-working space. Now, co-working, again, is used for just about everything because it's an optimized term on Google and, and uh in social media, but for the purpose of this discussion, a co-working space is the newfangled uh, type of operation where it can be a lot of open plan, open space planning uh, that happens and people come in and um, they don't necessarily have an enclosed cellular space, but instead they may pop in and out of an office and usually they're pretty casual. Um, they're, you don't have people, uh, hanging the, their 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 photos of their their kayaking trip anywhere because it's usually in an open desk environment um and uh those have become very popular in the last 10 years 
Um, and in those type of environments, sometimes you have them having beer bashes <laughs> and coffee clutches uh, and all kinds of things that kind of speak to community. So whereas the uh, service workspaces are mostly people on their own in enclosed offices, co-working spaces are very popular, especially for the newer generations, whereby they come in and uh, they, they work and they may not be at the same open desk today that they were yesterday, um, and they pop in and out, uh, and it's not necessarily enclosed space, although a lot of co-working spaces have evolved into also offering enclosed service workspace type of offices. Then the third model, which is the most popular model uh, right now, is what I call the hybrid space. Some people call it the flex space, um, and that's kind of a little bit of both, where it's a location where you can have either an enclosed office or a, um, a co-working space and, uh, and even have both, in fact, an open desk co-working space and then pop into an enclosed office uh, for a time, period of time or a couple of weeks or whatever it is. And that's where a lot of the um, operators now in this world have gravitated to. So they've come in from both angles. They've come in from the co-working world and they've come in from the service office world and they've come to a that hybrid type of space and um, and those have become very, very popular. Uh, and then now what's been happening with the advent of the, uh, the COVID uh, condition, um, the uh, co-working space, which is usually in, again, in my definition is an open plan workspace has become uh, less popular as you can imagine, because people want a social distance and they don't want to sit in a workstation across from someone that's suddenly, you know, just a few feet away, or even in an environment where it's all open. And even the hybrid locations, the, the flex space and hybrid locations, because they contain a good amount of open plan space, they have also become less popular and less populated, which leaves the traditional executive suite service workspace um, the most popular of the three brands. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that summary there, Ray. And it's interesting how the market is developing and changing in response to COVID. But the before COVID came along, and you talked about the hybrid, it, it that's really responding to customer demand, isn't it? I, I remember earlier days in co-working when the model was you, you created a space that was all shared. You may have an element of meeting room business there. But the problem was that, or the operators started to realize, was when those business individual people began to take on employees, they needed space, potentially private space, and they often lost customers because they didn't have it. And so they kind of started producing space that had private rooms. And of course, the traditional operators were finding customers wanting shared space because it was cool and, and great for new startups. So they were missing out. And, and I think that's where that hybrid came from, wasn't it? It was just responding to customer demand and the changing technology and what customers actually wanted. Yeah. And I go back to uh, even a little bit further back in the last 10 years, because uh, back in 1990, we actually did what was eventually became co-working because uh, we did offer those days also as an alternative uh, open desk space. And uh, we had uh, a, a, an open uh, coffee wet bar and uh, think, did all kinds of things that were community oriented, which is what the co-working world does now. Um, but yes, absolutely. What happens is everybody kind of gravitated towards the middle, towards the hybrid. 
And also just one other thing is that it was funny that uh, it was it was interesting that when the co-working open plan co-working world be, sprouted up, the uh, the traditional executive suite uh, service workspace community kind of looked down upon them as if these are people who are coming in. They don't have uh, the uh, the finances to to be able to lock into a full time office. So they were a bit skeptical about them. And then from the other side, the co-working people looked up to. The, uh, the people who had uh, executive suites uh, and closed offices as kind of a bit of a dinosaurs <laughs> who uh, who weren't, uh, let's say, up to speed on, on, the, on the. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for right now in the UK there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. Technical and the social advancements of the world. So they both kind of looked at each other in, in odd ways. I've, I've kind of been in, in, in both sides from the very beginning since 1990, like I mentioned. So I was, I was amused by the whole thing. But eventually what I expected happened, happened, which is everybody kind of met happily in the middle. And I know I don't know of any co-working space that today that or there are very few, let's put it that way, that don't offer some variety of enclosed office space. And I don't know very many traditional executive suite uh, that don't offer any sort of uh, open plan of working in some way, shape, or form. So everybody kind of met in the middle, and that's where they kind of were up until the beginning of this year and the, and the pandemic. Right. So that's that's evolution, right? Yeah. That's how that's how these things go. And as you say, it's funny when it starts, and people are looking from both sides. But as you grow older, you realize life's just phases, isn't it? And people change, and um, customer demands change. Well, let's just dig into that a little bit more, because it's difficult to separate ourselves out from covid and what's going on right now but if you can try and answer this question in two bits really i mean design is really critical to creating a winning space as as you rightly call them and what what are you advising people of right now for this covid area but also what are you advising them for beyond because at some point this too shall pass i appreciate there will be some um, habits that people form that they may not change as quickly but what are the bigger trends that people should work into design layout and the kind of that blended offering beyond COVID? And also, what should they be doing right now? What are you advising right now? So it's kind of a two-part question there, Ray. I think the answer to that has already been been shown because the people or the operators that have been successful are the ones that have been and will continue to do what uh, the COVID era has shown us to be the, the best way forward which is create a space that can easily be converted should the world change dramatically again. So those operators that are succeeding now are the ones 
that um, had a little bit of everything before and can easily, if need be, bring in any kind of um, furniture or equipment or sliding walls. So in other words, they might have their enclosed offices along the perimeter, which is common because those are the ones that you're going to get your best uh, income from, the best you're able to rent them out at the best rates. And then there'd be a big open space in the middle with desk areas that people can can come in and work off of. But if that middle open space, which com- which was comprised of mostly open desk space, uh, if you can bring in, let's say, some kind of cubicle furniture that uh, that is uh, electrified, uh, that people can um, therefore use uh, if you want to convert it easy enough without having to build walls or knock down walls. So the design uh, features of the ones that have been successful are the ones that didn't have to spend a lot to go ahead and uh, and semi-enclose the spaces. They can come in and they can bring cubicles to the middle. So that's where I would recommend people go right now, just to follow the ones that have been successful. Uh, my, my view is that based on having a, attended numerous uh, webinars and webcasts and podcasts, uh, oh, which is what part of what I do to stay ahead of the game uh, for my membership. Uh, I suspect that it's going to be a bit of a while before we see anything resembling what we saw up until the beginning of this year. Um, so I, I do believe that people really just need to be designing their spaces in a way that is so flexible that it, it you can almost overnight switch it. Uh, into where you need to be. If 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 co-working uh, becomes really hot and popular again, well, you just take down the midsections that were constructed modularly and, and without walls and stuff like that. So that's how I recommend uh, when I consult with, with uh, people who are interested in getting into the industry, uh, when I help tell them to design a space, I, I recommend that they do so in a fashion that extreme that is extremely flexible without in, uh, inviting a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, construction costs. And who knows? We don't know if there's going to be another, God forbid, another pandemic or some other feature that's going to be happening in our world where we have to go one direction or the other. So the flexibility is the biggest factor that I can recommend to, for, for people getting into the uh, into the game. That's great. Thanks, Ray. Interestingly, our own space that we have recently put a co-work into, we actually ended up moving it to another story, to another floor, where we had more perimeter light, uh, more perimeter windows. And what we were able to do is create lots of little pods. And this was, to be fair, this we'd already planned this in response to customers and what they were asking for before COVID. But then when COVID happened and, and finally we were allowed to kind of get going again, we'd created all these little pods around the perimeter. They were almost like little isolation booths. <laughs> which have worked really well, have been popular. And in the centre, as you say, there's the um, the fixed desks that maybe have got slightly hard partitions so that um, people feel a little bit more safe and secure in their own space, but it's still open plan. Um, but the other the other thing that always seems to be really important in these spaces is is the coffee and tea points, the, the, the places where people will um, possibly, I guess, <clears throat> again, COVID permitting, bump into each other, make connections, learn what other people do in, in the same space. And, and that's still really important in design, is it not? It is, but we're still right now um, for the members that I visit, because I do go around to my membership and, and 
and do a semi-inspection, I guess you can call it, uh, year-round. Um, uh, so I do visit them, and almost all of them are out of that, of offering that. They have it there, but they are concerned right now, especially given the fact that they're not really seeing uh, a great uh, traffic of, uh, of people coming back into the office just yet. Uh, we did a survey where most of them are in the 15 to 20% range of traffic of their traditional clients coming back into the office. Still, I think they're all waiting for the current situation. Our school system opens up now in September, and there's been all kinds of talk about that there might be a bump up, uh, an increase in the spread come school when the school starts right now. So a lot of people still playing wait and see on that, quite frankly. But what I do see right now, uh, and this is presuming that things eventually will get somewhat back to normal, uh, but but for now, what happens is a lot of it, a lot of the operators are actually freezing those areas out. Um, they've shut down their their coffee equipment area, and because that has people, if people contact them, that which is possible during the course of the day, if they're going to go and warm something up in the microwave or use a refrigerator or a coffee maker or whatever, the water fountain, what happens is that they are touching it. And when they're touching it, then you have to kind of almost have a way to be right one step behind it with someone with, with a cleaning person on site. Um, because still, even though uh, we, everyone realizes that it's more, more uh, mostly COVID is mostly an, an aerosol exchange uh, for contamination, there's still thought that they're that, uh, touching or, or any kind of surface uh, touching the surface contact, people touching them, their themselves uh, may spread it. So a lot of operators right now are still reluctant, and some of them I've seen have actually closed off those uh, pantry areas to a degree uh, and encouraging people to, to not use it up until then. I suspect that that will change in the next, uh, in the next month or two when I think things are gonna start changing, but uh, we still are respecting the possibility that uh, uh, touching surfaces is a way of spreading. And I think a lot of operators are, are doing that as well. And if that's the case, then their limited resources right now does not allow for a full-time or daytime person to, to be one step behind them to, to clean those pantry areas. As it is, a lot of them are doing hourly cleaning, uh, again, touch-ups of the restrooms, because obviously you can't deny them that. But as far as uh, the, the, the pantry services, that we call them, um, those right now for many operators is off limits, but I suspect, like I said, in the next 30 to 60 days, that'll be uh, lifted. It's, it's a really tricky situation at the moment, isn't it? And I do find myself looking on the news every now and then, not necessarily about what's happening here, but what's happening in other countries and what the responses are as, as things change. I do, from what you're saying there, I think we're maybe just slightly ahead of where you guys are at the moment. Um, but as okay, the infection rate seems to be going up a little bit in Europe, that may slow down and may change direction again. So it, it is a day-by-day -day thing, isn't it? And, of course, it does depend on volume too and how many people are using these spaces, as I'm sure we'll get on to about transport and things and, and, and location. Um, that's becoming a really, really important factor. Well, you know, funny enough is that we actually have a very low infection rate, probably with the model of the world right now in the New York City area, which is where the concentration of my members are. However, we went through such a serious, serious situation that everyone's quite a bit shy and careful right now. Yeah. 
which is why a lot of them are not going into the office. A lot of the uh, clients are not going into the office. Uh, so right now, we even though we're probably in a better shape than just about any place in the world, quite frankly, we when we look at the statistics, we are. Um, and we can tell also because when I go to when I when I drive down the street, I see only cars from other parts of the United States. It seems like so a lot of them are kind of coming for whatever reason coming in this direction. But still, we 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 went through such a horrific period uh, back in February, March, April, and through there that it was such a scary time that people are extremely cautious still. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to move on to something else, and and we're going to lead up to a question about. Um, about WeWork, so who better to ask? But let, let's just talk a little bit about the rent-to-rent model. And I want to just let our listeners know, and, and, and also to let you know that, you know, a, a lot of the guys and girls that listen to this podcast uh, want to invest in commercial real estate. So that, that is their primary driver behind their business. However, rent-to-rent is a model that's used quite a lot in this industry, and you're surrounded by enormous, huge buildings that can often be 60, 70, 80 stories high. And operators can't really rent out 60 stories of a building. What they tend to do is they tend to rent two or three floors, kit them out and sublet. That's effectively the model. And in fact, your conference um, that I was at was in one of the buildings that Larry Silverstein developed down at the World Trade Center. Are there, I mean, are there any operators in, in those new buildings downtown? Is that something typically that would go into some of these buildings? Yeah, that's the, that's the primary model is the rent-to-rent, uh, where, again, people come and take one or two or three floors in a high-rise building, and uh, then they'll build it out. Uh, and uh, so, so that has always been the case. It will continue to be the, the majority of the way forward, we believe, um, so I, I think we're going to see a continuation of it. And I think what what has really changed in that whole specter is the fact that up until recently, um, people would come in and uh, operators, people would get into the industry, let's say, and they would go in and, and, and work off that rent to rent model and um, they would do pretty well. It was a kind of a. Uh, kind of like the wild, wild west here in that sense, um, where everyone, uh, it was so popular, it was popularizing and, and doing so well for the last five or six years that uh, you'd have investors or people coming in and getting into the industry and doing awfully well. And they were usually mostly using the, the approach of, uh, there used to be an old movie, uh, you, you may remember it, it's, a, it's an old baseball nostalgia movie called Field of Dreams. And, and yeah. uh, the... Uh, the theme of it was build it and they will come. Uh, and that really was happening up until uh, recently. People were coming in, opening a, a, bill, a, a rent to rent and they were doing well. And especially if they were doing using that hybrid model where there's a little bit for everybody, for any comer um, or even the Nike commercial where just do it. People are just getting into it and doing it and doing well. Well, now what's happening is that it's a little bit different. It's not the building they will come. It's build it right in the right place and they will come. And that's a nuance. And that's where we are right now, um, whereby people are not necessarily automatically going to go uh, into the city and commute into the city uh, to work. They want to work closer to home and shorter commutes at least. Uh, and so that's really the, the distinction right now is that it's not kind of like I said, like the Wild West bef- up until about uh, for the past 
six or seven years where everyone seemed to be doing well in, in, in Manhattan, uh, which is where the, the majority of our members are. Although, like I said, we do have members all over uh, the United States and elsewhere. But a good 60% of our membership is in the big city. And that is changing. I suspect it's going to be changing more. So it's building, uh, getting into a space and building it out in the right space with a little more thought to it uh, and uh, the right kind of space. So that, that's where the, the, the distinction is right now. Okay. And before COVID, was that market still full steam ahead or had those changes started happening already? Is it, uh, is it mainly as a result of COVID that those that it's more and more important about location or was there a becoming a bit of saturation? We were all waiting for the saturation. We thought that WeWork was going to oversaturate and that would be the end. But remarkably, everybody pretty much held their own. So it was just a voracious market. Uh, it was, you know, some, again, like anything else, some people will struggle. You know, people who went into it and weren't financed well enough or weren't um, hospitality-centric enough, um, they struggled just like we in, in, the, in the industry. But for the most part, people were coming into the industry and, and, and picking anywhere on that spectrum from co-working to service workspace to hybrid, anywhere in there. And for the most part, they were doing pretty well, the majority of them. So that was what was happening up until about now. But now there's a mad scramble. Now the deck has been shuffled. Just, just out of interest, how much would a typical desk cost for a customer in downtown? I'll give you a range, and it's going to be in dollar figures, so you're going to have to figure it, up on, figure it out on GBPs or whatever. Dollars is fine. But um, the offices uh, were about, I'd say a midpoint of about $1,000 uh, uh, per desk. So if it was two desks in an offices, you might see uh, in the two $1,500 to $2,000 range, it was a single office. You can get them for a thousand. Um, it's been, it's been higher. And uh, I remember in the, in the real wild, wild west years of, of the early two thousands, uh, uh, or late 1990, late 1990s, where it was actually even higher. Um, because of the financial economic situation in the United States and people getting into it. So it was actually even higher per desk or per room and per desk. But um, it's generally speaking, you're talking about a thousand to $1,200 range uh, for someone to get in business in a business center, executive suite, uh, uh, serviced office environment. Um, the, uh, if they took a co-working space, you're talking about 300 to 500 that would be an open plan space. Interesting. I think I think that sounds just a wee bit less than you would be maybe paying in London, where there's there's a high concentration too. Yeah, I I, I priced out London when I was there, uh, but I haven't been there a few years, and I had noticed that uh, your situation there was a tad higher than 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 what we were charging in New York at the time when I. So you guys you guys uh, on that side of the pond had. Uh, had a little bit more robust pricing than we did. Okay. And and we're going to talk about WeWork in a second. But just in terms of the amount of space in New York, you may or may not know this number, Ray, but just in terms of service space or flexible space, do you know what the percentages got to in New York, roughly, of kind of overall space available and that that was over to service and flexible? 
first of all, the the average space uh, of a workspace uh, in New York City uh, to open up was a fifteen thousand square feet would be the smallest space that you would if it was a service workspace. If you were a um, a co-working space, it would be a you can get you can get away with between five and ten thousand and make money off of it. Um, and then as far as um, the uh, the occupancy, if that was where you were going with this, um, we were having some place. Mo- most of the, most of the places, uh, most of the operators uh, were in the seventy five to ninety five percent capacity uh, occupancy range. I guess the other side of it is just you've kind of answered already, which is you know this whole market in New York has been growing and growing, and one of those um, big names in that, of course, is WeWork. And and it it started right where you are, okay. So, you know, you you could tell us a little bit a little bit about the story and how people in the city actually view it as as WeWork, and not only became the largest occupier in New York, but also went all around the globe. What what what's the view from the city on on what happened there? Well, a lot of people had uh, a lot of operators had uh, kind of a sour view on WeWork because of the fact that they were pretty relentless and almost reckless on opening spaces anywhere around town. I was originally a member of an association uh, that Adam uh, Newman, who founded WeWork, was part of. And uh, we remember how eccentric and how aggressive he was when he first got involved uh, with it, uh, with with WeWork. So uh, he did really well, and we have to honor that. Uh, But what happened is that a lot of the WeWorks uh, they were able to get the financing and be aggressive enough uh, to literally open up shop across the street or sometimes even in the same building, believe it or not, uh, which was something odd that some people, operators did, they didn't make their, them exclusive to the landlord in their building. And um, when they did it, they were very aggressive in doing all kinds of things to kind of uh, – Pull away the 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 members and the and, and the clients and and the tenants that we had. So they ultimately WeWork became the largest tenant in New York City. They actually had the most rented space of any building, any company in 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 New York. They uh, they it used to be Chase Chase Manhattan Bank. Uh, that was uh, the biggest group that had space in New York City. So they actually, last year, uh, they became the the number one tenant in terms of size in New York City. But they were very aggressive. Um, They left a bad taste in a lot of the operators' mouth because they did uh, uh, pull away uh, with aggressive tactics uh, by offering all kinds of deals uh, to, to people in our buildings. There was a flip side to that, though, too, because they didn't do a great job of holding on to their people. And a lot of people had a lot of complaints about WeWork. So a lot of instances they came back to us after making the mistake and being lured away uh, financially. Uh, so we it, things turned around to the point where we we got to the point where operators were actually hoping that WeWork would open up a space nearby because that would create traffic to that area, A, and B, we were significantly uh, more prepared and better suited to provide the hospitality that most people seek when they come to a service workspace or a co-working space. That sounds a familiar story from maybe 10 years ago when, particularly in the UK, when there was another major brand growing and yep. 
trying to take over the world. And actually, if you looked at it, sometimes the silver lining was if you just held your nerve, the customers started coming out the, the door again, looking for another offering. Yep. And then, of course, they're they're constantly building up the message about the industry, aren't they? I, I mean, are they still the largest occupier? Have they pulled out of some spaces? It's, it's not well defined yet. We keep on, I mean, I, I stay on top of... Uh, the news that constantly comes constantly comes out, plus hear rumors and stuff like that. So they have they have slowed down because they had a lot of uh, locations that they were going to be opening uh, that were on the drawing board that they that they that they locked down, and so they're not doing those. Um, and they have consolidated some spaces, and uh, uh, they let go of a lot of a work a lot of workers. Um, so it's possible that they still might be number one technically as far as the amount of space that they have uh if they're not they're still up way up there because they did some deals that uh, took over so much i mean it was an incredible amount of uh square footage that they had so uh i'm not sure that they're still number one but they're they're so way they're so far up there that they're still significant yeah okay i want to move on to something else you've touched on it already right a lot of our investors are looking at secondary locations or outside the city areas, maybe in suburbs, where they can buy the assets. And what do you see developing for these sort of smaller locations in the suburbs and rural locations? Do you see them benefiting from the current situation? And what do they need to do to make their offering attractive enough to take that opportunity, if indeed you perceive it as an opportunity? If I were opening up a service workspace or a co-working space right now, I would do it in the suburbs, the exurbs, they call it also. So somewhere between the city and the suburbs or the suburbs. Um, I, I, I think, uh, again, it gets back to what I mentioned earlier, like you mentioned, which is that uh, people now want to have space to go work at that they don't have to commute half hour, 45 minutes, an hour or more to that they can pop in and out when they need to go there and do a meeting. So uh, I think um, it's wise to, for anybody getting into the industry, it's wise for them to consider, which is a suburb suburb location, which also has a lower price, obviously. Um, So I think that's that's good. I I don't want to diminish the fact that there's still uh, good opportunities in the city. They have to be run right. Same thing with the suburbs. It gets back to the old uh, adage that uh, you, you you need to. We're in, in a re, we're in a recessionary period, no doubt about it, and that kind of forces people to do the right thing and be better than the next guy. Um, so whereas before they might have gotten away with it because it was such a hot market and up until the last year, right now it's just they really have to put their nose to the grindstone and be a good uh, a good operator of space and have uh, a, a good relationship with their with their clients and tenants um, and they will succeed wherever they go if they do that but right now uh, I would say that I would lean towards uh, doing something closer to where their commute is shorter which is where they live which is in many instances in the in the uh, suburbs where it's also a, a better rates they'll be able to get I, I totally agree. I think that the suburbs, I mean, it's an area that we invest in, I think, and I see it through the customer inquiries that we get, that that is a trend that's been accelerated because of COVID. It was there before because technology was allowing them to change, flexible working was allowing them to change. And it's not people that start up their own business. It might 
although sometimes it is, but often it's somebody who works for a corporate who now um, doesn't have to go to the office to prove how amazing they are from, you know, seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, they can actually start working near their home. So it's, it's there's two things combining there, isn't there really? There's the people that are maybe getting really redundant, starting their own business as, as happened in 2008 and nine. But the additional one now is the fact that technology has allowed large corporates to let their employees work a little bit more where they choose. So it's it, they're great trends. Well, how are you seeing traditional operators responding to this that maybe are in the city? Are they are they taking up new locations or are they still sitting tight and waiting to see what happens? From my vantage point, they are mostly sitting tight. Very few are, if, at least the operators in the city, the big city operators that I deal with, because uh, I also have a lot of members who are already out in the suburbs and I have a great numbers of those two around the country. Uh, and they, they're hurting less, but they are hurting a little bit, quite frankly. But uh, the big city people are, are, are kind of committed. Uh, they'll have longer leases that they, uh, that they have to make good on. So they're right now scrambling to figure out the best way forward. So I haven't really seen uh, any kind of rush to, for them to say, okay, let me cash in my chips or let me move out to the suburbs and do that. They have a big ticket item that they that they're that they have right now in the city so now is not a time for them to take extra money and and apply it in the suburbs but for somebody getting into the industry um this is actually an exciting time uh with with, with everything being everything being shuffled uh the whole deck being shuffled uh a lot of the things that were norms before not being norms now um uh, if if someone is getting into the industry and plays their cards right and they they analyze things right and are committed to providing an excellent uh, location and excellent service and excellent hospitality uh, situation. They would do well uh, in the burbs because people, again, they're, they're just not quite, and I don't know when it's going to happen, but they're not quite committed to for the long commute into the city. Now, some of people, a lot of people live in the city too, so it's not as a big deal, but still people are working from home. That's what, that's what companies are realizing that some of them were doing it before, but now a lot of them are doing it. Obviously, that they're letting people work from the off, or work away from their headquarters, central office, and it's working pretty well. And they're saying, "Wow, we're stuck with this lease uh, and uh, a long-term lease and all this uh, build-out and equipment and everything like that." But we seem to be doing okay. Whereas before, like you said, people would have to go into the central headquarter office and be accounted for, and then there'd be a, a structure of of people that would uh, have to provide them services in the office and keep track of all the things that happen in the office and all kinds of different departments. Uh, companies are now realizing that what was a small trend before of releasing people to do work from home, now out of necessity, they realize that it really isn't as terrible as it looks and people not necessarily goofing off when they're working from home. So remote working is pop more popular than ever. Uh, and uh, now the flip side is that remote working does have its limitations. So that's why our industry won't ever go away. It's just that people getting into the industry need to keep their their ear to the to ground and realize that what is being requested or is being needed nowadays is different than it was up until the beginning of this year. 
Yeah, so I mean, evolution is happening ever faster. Oh, isn't yeah, it? And mm-hmm. disruption, which you're talking about there, is is the bread and butter for entrepreneurs, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're just getting started, you've got opportunities to pivot straight away. Whereas, as you say, the larger operators are are committed to certain style and offering, and those that can will adapt and change. But I think the important thing for 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 listeners of this is that you know if you are trying to get into this industry. Although it may seem a bit scary right now that everything's going on, it is the absolute time for new things, for changes, because this disruption means things change very, very quickly, which brings opportunity, of course. Oh, yeah. But just just parking that for a second and parking COVID, if we can, because, you know, at some point it will pass. At some point we will get our hands around this and, and work out a way of dealing with it. But where is this market going to be? in five or 10 years time, Rick. And I know we've touched on a few different things here, but, but it, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about the customer, right? So what do you think they are really going to want in five or 10 years time? What, what's going to change for that customer demand? Uh, when I look into where I think the world is going, and now it's, it's actually very tough to do five or 10 year projections, as we all know, but, but let's look into the crystal ball anyway and, and, and do that. Um, I think that we're going to be seeing a uh, kind of a, a kickback or, or, or reverse, a reversal of some of the stuff that we had seen in the last 20 years or so, where as, as everything became more IT-centric, there was uh, there's been a loss in the personal touch in the hospitality way of doing things. I know I drove myself crazy just the day before yesterday, making a phone call and going through different layers on the phone call on a phone call tree and never speaking to anybody and never getting what I needed to do. But that's technology. I think there, there's going to be a rebound for people uh, to really appreciating the interpersonal touch in a big way. We've seen it a little bit recently, but in a big way. I think that um, people will have to, uh, just like in any successful business right now, the people who are able to um, make that special one-on-one connection and spend some time and rather than have uh, a lot of their services automated in a way that there's not much interpersonal connection. I think those are the people that are going to really succeed. And there's all kinds of things. What I have seen, and this has always been the case for when I've been consulting, is that a lot of people thought that, well, here's what we do to maintain good relations with our clients. Uh, We have these big get-togethers at big parties and do all kinds of things and make everybody be happy. And and then those things have a good uh, feel and a good effect. I always found that taking a client down the hall for a cup of coffee was infinitely more effective than doing these big things that make a big splash and then everybody waits for the next big splash but still when it gets down to it we are a hospitality industry uh, i would argue that we are the most the, the, the largest hospitality industry around because when you are uh when you go to a hotel or an airline or a car rental those hospitality industries, they're with you for whatever the length of time for when you're eating in their restaurant or taking their trip or whatever. But we are, as a, as a hospitality industry, we are in a fishbowl 
and they come and see us practically every day and they're with us and we have to, we're constantly on the spot to deliver uh, as opposed to just a quick in and out for a couple of hours, a couple of days or whatever. So I believe that we are the heart of the hospitality industry and I'm proud of that. I think we, we just need to make sure that we never get away from that and we get too IT centric, which I think is where we were going. Um, and uh, again, it's the, it's the small touches, not the big ones that last the long, longest and that wind up creating the type of business that the people that you serve wind up helping you by referring people. And, and that's what I've seen right now, by the way, in the people who have been most successful during this COVID situation, there's a lot of operators that have lost people. People have given up and said, well, I was on the brink of losing uh, my business anyway, and this was a fatal blow. So a lot of people have, have uh, bailed out a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of uh, companies that had space in, in business centers and co-working. Whereas the ones that I know that are prolific in the delivery of hospitality and have good one-on-one relationships with their people, they're hardly touched. They're actually doing okay uh, compared to the others. So I think that that's what we're going to be seeing in the next couple of years. People are going to wake up and realize, say, we have gone, the pendulumists may have gone too much to the side of, uh, of the technical side and, and automation side. And now it's time for us to make sure that we show more appreciation and have those relationships that will sustain during difficult times. And those are the ones that are winning right now. That's really, that's really great insight. Thank you for that, Ray. Um, I've got some questions here that have been sent in by a few listeners. Um, Ian, Michelle, and Graham have all sent in some questions just to do maybe a quick fire round with you, if you're okay with that. Sure, we'll give it a shot. Um, Ray, what, what do you see? Do you see any differences in the UK market or indeed other markets around the world? Do, when, when you've been over here and you've, and I know you've been out in the Far East and places, what? Do you see any differences or is this model really um, evolving in the same kind of rate in all these different locations or do people need to think about different aspects? I travel a bit to Europe and to Latin America and um, when I um, go, I go there to learn, specifically to learn little wrinkles and things I could bring back to my membership. I'm surprised how the successful operators in all the countries have figured it out on their own. And they've all figured out simultaneously what's the right thing to do. I think it happens in just about every industry. Um, but in our industry, for sure, uh, I, I, I'm just amazed at how the best operators here in the States are on par with the best operators in the UK and every place else. And they do pretty much the similar things, which is surprising to me. I thought culturally you'll see different things, but I have friends in, in UK and Germany and in Italy and Spain and, and, and all over North America. And there is a model, there is a consistency of all the business centers that are doing the right things and they're the most successful ones. So there is a formula. I mean, there's, there's always little wrinkles on along the edges, but for the most part, there is a certain way of being that is consistent with all the, the successful operators. Interesting. And if you could summarize the three things into three things, what those operators do that make them successful, what, what would those top three things be? Well, the first one is the obvious one, which I just mentioned, is the relationship. They're relationship people in our relationship in high hospitality industry. We're the highest of the high hospitality industry, like I mentioned before. They're, they have us in it. We're in the fishbowl uh, just about every day. So it's those that have uh, the ones that succeed are the ones that have 
uh, those special relationships. And, and it doesn't take a heck of a long time to, de to develop. It's just a little soft touches that do that. Um, I think also, as also as I mentioned earlier, um, it's being able to design a space that you can switch gears on that's flexible enough, like the ones that you mentioned or that you or, and that I mentioned. Um, I think that um, it's it's key that uh, because we don't know what five or ten years is going to down the road, we don't know what's going to, one year down the road. We don't know when um, the economies are really going to turn around. There's this, people suspect it's going to be the end of second quarter next year that we'll start seeing some normalization. Some people are a bit more conservative on, on that view. But uh, we can't put our eggs all our eggs in one basket, and that's what we've seen that the and uh, that has happened. The ones that are suffering or that are having more difficulty right now are the ones that were uh, fully um, uh, open plan um, and didn't leave any room for for the possibility that things could switch. And they were high flying. There was no reason for them to think of that unless they were had a little bit of foresight. So I believe that it's important to those two things are the ones that jump out at me. Um, that they have to uh, have, uh, have have the flexibility, and they uh, and they have to have the relationship. Those things are going to sustain them, um, uh, you know. So I'm going to go with the, with two. I could probably go with another 17, but I think that those are the two ones. If, if people can focus in on those two things, they're going to do all right. I appreciate that. That's great, and and it's it, it's interesting our industry, isn't it? Because you you effectively, especially if you've got managed locations, you're living with your customers, really, in all intents and purposes. So you you tend to see even maybe before they do how well their business is doing, or sometimes how their business is maybe not doing so well, or how they may need to upsize or downsize before they even have that conversation with you because you can see the telltale signs, you have those conversations, you see how many visitors they're getting, all these different things. You know more than their accountant knows just by virtue of the fact that you're in close proximity with them all the time. And it also gives you the opportunity to see when you maybe need to offer out some help, isn't it? You know, they might be in a space that's too big, they need to maybe downsize, and you might need to bring that conversation up sooner rather than later. Because I think we'd all like to keep a customer rather than let them see go bust. You know, and, and it's it's those things that really help add, as you say, on that personal touch. There's one other question here I had in, which I'm just going to tweak slightly, because obviously the model that we've been talking about is rent to rent. But what is the kind of number one requirement you're seeing operators need to utilize or use as a negotiation tactic to take home property from landlords? And of course, is that changing? Well, I, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier. The big thing is just, just like you need to be a partner with the people that you bring in uh, as clients, uh, in fact, I don't call them clients, they're our neighbors. And like you mentioned earlier, um, the uh, you spend a heck of a long time with them. In, in the days when people uh, when people would spend 40 or more hours working in the office when your clients would be there, you would see them more than you'd see your own family. And uh, you, know, <laughs> you spend more time with them. So you, you do get a sense of what they're up to. But um, I, 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 I still, along the same lines, it's critical to have a good relationship with your clients, just as it's important to have a good relationship with your landlord. And um, I know some people who do have that good relationship. I know some people that the landlord not only gave them a good deal, but also gives them uh, a fee for when they do are able to ref 
for people that outgrow their space because in many instances, that's what they're coming to do. They're coming to incubate their space and grow their business. And so we've seen that as well. So, and that has been critical again for the people uh, who have gone back to their landlords during this period. Many of operators have gone back to them and say, listen, we're in a tough situation as you know, uh, we want to be uh, as stable as we can be for you. And landlords have many of them, not all, but many of them remarkably have have uh, considered that and have worked out uh, you know discounted situations for them. And again, that gets back to the ones that are better, the business that are better one better run. The ones that are the operators that are cold and send in their rent and send in their complaints, and that's about the end of that. Uh, they haven't fared as well. So again, uh, our hospitality extends beyond our clients. It, be, it also extends to who we are the clients of, and that holds true for the landlord and for all the suppliers and providers. So it's 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 a way of living. It's a way of being, and 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 and, and I clearly see those in, in North America and in Europe and all over. The ones that do well are the ones that live by that by that mantra. Brilliant. Thank you, right? I'm going to ask you a slightly different question about branding and marketing, or at least analyzing markets. So new operator or, or uh, somebody who wants to develop a site, what, what are the things they should be doing to assess what the market is like around that building that they've identified? Is there, are there some key things they should be doing to looking at what is possible there and whether that location is good? Because location we've talked about it before it's one of the key factors isn't it so how, how do people establish or what top tips would you give them about developing an understanding of what the market demand is in the area that they're looking at well i i, I have a kind of quick funny story i remember when i was a younger fellow i had a, a shoe operation and i was up on fifth avenue near the empire state building and i remember that i was the only guy in that part of town basically and I remember that there was going to be a couple of people opening up a couple of uh, shoe stores nearby. And I couldn't sleep for days and weeks. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is this is awful. I used to have this whole block just for me or these whole few blocks for me. And now I got two or three that are going to be opening up in the next couple of months. And then it turned out when they opened up those spaces, I did better. It was counterintuitive. But what happened is that by opening up those spaces, we had situations where more traffic was naturally coming to that area. And since I was the best, they wound up coming. I was getting more traffic coming to me. It's counterintuitive, but I wouldn't work. People sometimes what they'll do is they'll do some research and they'll say, OK, how many business centers are there in this location within a two block radius in Manhattan? That's that's common. And then they'll scare away. And no, if, if you're committed to being excellent, the world will notice. So one of the things that to not do is to not be scared away by having competitors nearby, because actually, in a sense, they might create a hub of more people coming in your area, people that will go here, there, and everywhere, and will naturally come to you because that's how they shop. And when they come to you, if you are indeed excellent, they'll get it, and you'll get them. So that's one of the things that, that, that I uh, caution people when they're thinking about opening up the spaces, not to uh, automatically dismiss they're going into an, an area where there, are, uh, where there are competitors, as long as you're committed to being the best competitor. Competition is good. And, and in the UK, one of the, one of the examples that even today I was looking at, at one of our properties in, uh, in another city is hairdressers. 
often they crowd together on the same street. And it's funny, a street near where our building is, I just noticed another two hairdressers have opened up and there's already three of them, four of them there. And you're like, goodness me. But these guys flock together because they all collectively um, create more demand, don't they? It's yeah. absolutely true. And quite a lot of people I speak to get, get a bit concerned about you know, what about competition? And, and I'm looking at this brand new area. There isn't anything there. And sometimes that might tell you something. But other times, obviously, it can be good if you've got to an area where there's no competition. But you're not going to be in isolation forever. Competition will turn up. And and I think that's just such a good point about just make sure you're the best and differentiate yourself so that when that competition comes, it brings more traffic. How do you attract more people? It's It, it was a great answer. Thank you, Ray. Yep. Um, so we're just about to close up. I've covered my questions. I just wondered whether there was anything else that you would, any other pearls of wisdom you'd maybe share with startups in this in this industry and people that they're maybe looking a little bit more from the asset point of view. They want to buy the asset. Should they consider operating it themselves? Could they maybe find an operator that's going to work well for them? Um, is there is there anything else that you would add to what we've discussed? Yeah, I think there's so many variables and unknowns nowadays that I would re- almost recommend that someone dip their toe in the water. Uh, some people come with a large uh, financing and they want to do some big extravagant thing. I would say that for someone who is getting into the game to do one of two things. Number one is think small to medium okay so if you're talking about something in north america you're talking about 15,000 to 20,000 square feet that you might want to open again uh it could be closer to where they live as opposed to deep in the city um and also another possibility which is a good option which i think is going to be even a better option in the next couple of months once the shakeout from covid happens is that you may want to get into the industry by going to someone who right now has been in the industry and who may be in the in a situation where they may want to be pulling out because you're going to go into something that already worked successfully, probably. Uh, you're going to get a good feel for it. So when I people come to me sometimes, investors here in, in the New York area, and I tell them, listen, let's look at these possibilities rather than starting from scratch. Let's take out all the headaches that go into planning out a space. There are spaces that have been in business for a while and they may be retiring or, or something like that, at which time it might behoove you to go in, take something that's already running. Maybe you won't make the killing that you want financially, but that you, you hit the ground running because there are, are thousands of things to think about that you can't even imagine when you're opening up a, a, a business center. So why reinvent the wheel? Get something that, is 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 somewhat profitable you're going to make it more profitable because you're going to be excellent and you're going to be excited and do all kinds of exciting things to, to gather people when you get in and you are going to do some new wrinkles but there are all kinds of little things that go into running a business center that that you uh wind up uh learning if it's or if it's a business center that already exists that i would say might be one good option or the other one would be to get something smaller in the burbs uh, that you can tinker with and learn from the ground up. If you're a good learner, if you have some good, if you have some good business acumen, then you should be able to figure your way out. But those are two two situations that I think are best: either take something over that's already there that somebody's looking to retire, or 
take or start from scratch uh, in, uh, in the burbs in the suburbs on something that's a little bit less expensive and that you can tinker with and learn quickly. Ray, I'm so glad you said that was a great way to finish this podcast because there's two things there that I talk about quite a lot. One is start small and make it so that you don't do your mistakes and learn very expensively. And the second one is when you're looking for an asset or an operation like this, why not find something that's already producing income? It makes the whole thing much easier to ease your way into. So it, it, it's really interesting that you say that without me um, talking to you about it and you based where you are over the other side of the pond. It's quite interesting that it rings true over there. Try and, try and get yourself into this thing in, by easing your way in rather than just going all out guns blazing. What's interesting, of course, a lot of the, the time that you're talking about there about finding an operator or in, in the case of somebody maybe investing in a building, often you don't know it's for sale. In fact, sometimes the owner doesn't know it's for sale, but it's just that you have to start having those conversations and you seek out opportunity by having conversations with operators or other people that own buildings to find out whether they are possibly in that frame of mind where actually it's time to buy out. I'll cash in my chips. You guys are going to come in, bring in new life, bring in new ideas and, and make the asset work much better. Um, so thanks for that, Ray. I really appreciate that answer there. Um, Ray, You've you've shared lots with us. I really appreciate it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna close this up now, but I want you to give us some places where people can find you, see what you do. Um, some of your maybe social media. I'll put them in the show notes, but could you maybe just tell us some places that people could find you if they want to look you up? Um, the best place, uh, well, the name of my organization is Winning Workspaces Hospitality Group. Uh, and, uh, so that's from my consulting organization for the past 30 years, but most people reach out to me from my association, uh, and they're also on my, uh, mailing list and, and, uh, we're always happy to engage anybody, any part of the world. And that's workspace, the workspace association of New York.com workspace association of New York.com W A N Y, or certainly they can reach out to you. Since you're a central figure, you probably could connect them to me. But uh, I'd be more than happy to share anything for anybody who has any questions or anything they want to do. And if they want to come to New York, let, it, let me know, and I'll see if I can help them any way that I can. We're always looking for good operators and entrepreneurs to, to bolster our, our industry and economy here. That's fantastic. I've got to ask, are you um, considering running an event in June next year? Or Oh, yeah, I hope you come. Absolutely. We, we're, there, we probably are not going to have... Uh, our uh, the, we, we usually have three a year. We have our anniversary meeting, which happens in March. We have our annual meeting, which is uh, we're up to 15 now, and that happens in June. And then we have a year-end meeting. And they're all three pretty big meetings. And anybody who's coming to New York in those times, let me know. Uh, again, www.workspace-any.com, workspace-any.com, or ray at workspace-any.com, workspace-any, which is Workspace Associated from New York. Let me know if you're in town, and I can also help you perhaps visit with some of our members. We'd be happy to do that and tell you where the best place to get a pint. Wow. There you have it, listeners. You have an open invitation to New York. I'm sure you might be able to even put that on expenses going over to New York to discover and just. decipher how this industry works. Ray, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic. I always love talking to you because you always have 
open my mind to different things that are going on in this industry and things that I can actually do and implement in my own business. So thank you very much. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I have. Look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Mm-hmm.